We're in Ephesians 4 this summer, and basically Pat did a wonderful job setting the theme, which is walking the walk. Ephesians 1 through 3 tell us who we are as Christians. Ephesians 4 begins to get down into, so this is what we're going to do. This is what this means in light of who we are in Jesus Christ. And so the first couple verses, Pat reminded us that it's in and with a heart of humility through which we move forward as Christians. And then last week we looked at the reality that we have to be together. We have to be one. We must unite and we must consider our associations as Christians, as those who are baptized into Christ, as the highest privilege and calling that demands our loyalty and the reality that comes out of that. And so now today we're going to be in verses 7 through 12, verses 7 through 12, for the reality of, it's called strange gifts, and we'll unpack why it's so strange that we would be given these gifts. So I'm going to read for us, this is Ephesians chapter 4, I'm going to read verses 4 through 12 just for the sake of, uh, for summary, but we'll be focusing on 7 through 12. So this is Ephesians chapter 4. There is one body and one spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And saying he ascended, what does it mean but, the, but that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ." This is a passage about gifts given to the diversity of the church, and the reason why they're strange gifts, uh, it immediately made me consider weird Christmas gifts that we receive, or perhaps unexpected Christmas gifts, and in seasons of expectation, when we become a Christian, we immediately think that we're going to get the awesome superpowers, we ask for healing, we ask for tongues. We want the, uh, the magic wand and to do cool stuff, and then instead we don't get that. Uh, Christmas morning, uh, a couple years ago, I got a blanket that was monogrammed with my initials. And to say that it was underwhelming would be an overstatement. It was, it was exactly two and a half years too late. Um, when I was 25, it would have been cool, but at 28 and you're trying to meet a girl, it's tough to get a blanket. Um, it's the exact thing that you're not asking for, it's like Linus from Peanuts. Like I was going to walk around with it as some sort of security belt uh, that was going to give me confidence or something. And Christmas is like that all the time. We have expectations and pictures in mind of what we think we should receive, what we want, and then we get... We open the box and unwrap the present, and we think, oh, great, another sweater vest. Awesome. From Joseph A. Bank, again. <laughs> I was at Joseph A. Bank recently. I think I'm the only person that's ever paid full price for an item at Joseph A. Bank. 
uh, and I did it because I was buying socks, because I was preaching Vespers here and I forgot socks, uh, which makes sense because I don't, don't expect me to dress nicely all day. I'm getting into my PJs right after y'all go to work. Um, I open with that because the gifts that we receive oftentimes are a part of a story that we imagine ourselves to be a part of. And anytime we receive a gift, we imagine ourselves doing something with that gift, and it tells us something about the gift giver. And whenever we get a gift that's disappointing, we think, well, gosh, do you even really know me? Do you care? This, this is the best we can do? And it's part of a story that we receive. And the gifts that God has given us, that Jesus has given us, are listed fivefold, and they're listed as people, as in many ways as offices within the church. And many times we think, well, I don't want that. That doesn't sound like a gift to be given a pastor. That doesn't sound that fun, actually. Because to be given a gift like that is to be brought into the reality of a story. The story is told in verses 8 through 10, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth. He who descended is the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. It's a strange and odd aside that Paul goes into. We're talking about gifts and the diversity within the body, and yet immediately Paul pulls out a quote Seemingly from nowhere, it's from Psalm 68, talking about Jesus being the one who ascended and descended, who has a captive behind him, a train of captives, and he's going to give gifts. Now, that psalm is a psalm of conquest. It's David talking to the people of God, saying, God, just in the same way that you went up onto Mount Sinai and gave the Ten Commandments, just in the same way that your tabernacle, your Ark of the Covenant, entered into Jerusalem onto Mount Zion. We want and ask for you to enter in now in triumph and in presence of your glory with a host of captives behind us. And you're going to be receiving gifts. And what Paul has done is he's flipped it in a sense in this passage. And he's saying that Jesus is the one who's ascended on high and that Jesus is actually distributing and giving gifts. If you look down in the text, it says... Again, he gave gifts to men. Well, what are those gifts? This passage that we're going to be talking about is not an exhaustive list of the gifts and the quote-unquote graces that God has given to the church. So I want that to be clear from the, from the very beginning. But it is a specific list for us and for the church. And in fact, Scripture commentators have pointed out, I didn't realize this, that there are at least 20 different spiritual gifts that are listed as God gave them as graces to the church. Now, you'll notice I gave you about a thousand words on this handout, and so if you, for one reason, if you tune out, you can get lost in the text. That would be a good thing. But secondly, I wanted you to be able to take an inventory and see the different places throughout the New Testament where they actually talk about God giving gifts to the church. And they are from a variety of different areas. In Romans 12, it talks about the different grace given to us, saying, if prophecy, if we prophesy, let's do it in proportion to our faith. Service, 
If we serve, then let's serve. If we teach, let's teach. If we're an exhorter, let's do it well. If we're a contributor, let's be generous. These are all listed as gifts, and there are other passages listed, so you understand that there's a wide variety of gifts that God has given to his church. But this particular listing of gifts that God has given to his church for us are in many ways, they don't feel as good because in some ways they're people. They're not, they're not powers. They're people. Who are these people? Well, let's take a look at it. Who are the apostles? Well, the apostles, if you look in Scripture, Jesus actually uses language about apostles are people who are sent. So is Jesus talking about an apostle as any person who is sent? If you're a Christian, then you are someone who Jesus has sent out into the world in order to make disciples of all nations. That's from Matthew 28. So are we all apostles? In a sense, yes. In the way this passage is telling us, probably not. Because in reality, there was a historical time period where there were apostles who we would consider to be the disciples, and then Paul, and then Jesus' brother, James. And what an apostle was, was an apostle was listed as someone who had been an eyewitness of Jesus and who was a cornerstone or a foundation of his new people, the church. So the apostle is foundational. And in fact, the apostle would be the one who received God's word to them. When we think about Paul, who wrote the New Testament, we think about these different disciples. We think about Peter. We think about John. What They are apostles. And what did they get? They received the word of God, and then they recorded it down here for us. So that's one fold. But other people who received revelation were the prophets. If you've read any of the Old Testament, you'll find a familiar refrain, and it goes something like this, thus says the Lord. And then they immediately begin speaking and saying, this is what God says. And the word of a prophet is to be a direct mouthpiece of God, to literally deliver direct revelation of God. Can we be anything more than that? Can a prophet be more than that? In some ways, yes. In many ways, actually, you and I can be, quote-unquote, prophetic. And the way the Lord gives through the Holy Spirit gives these gifts, and it, with prophecy, it would be a question of an acute discernment of what is happening at the times. Not necessarily saying, well, tomorrow, doomsday is coming. It's not apocalyptic imagery. It's not left behind, last things. It's not... John the Baptist, it's not Elijah with the huge beard. It's prophetic in the sense that you are giving and are faithful to God's word and you are giving it to a people and a world and a time. So are there prophets? Yes. But these prophets, the ones who gave us the foundation of the Bible, do we have them still? No, we do not. And so I want you to consider the reality that the gift of the apostles and the prophets, what is the legacy of the apostle and the prophets? Look at the Bible on your table. In many ways, the person, the gift through which God worked, these apostles and prophets, the Bible was not started out 
in the ESV. It started out much differently. It was actually transmitted orally, which means it went through people at a certain time and a certain place, and God used people, normal, average people like you and me, for a specific purpose, and that was to receive God's word, and we record it and have it. The first manuscript? Yeah. Uh, that's a good question. First manuscripts, depending on the testament, um, in the New Testament, the earliest manuscripts we have, since they were letters, they were written, we would say, in the 50 AD. If it was Old Testament manuscripts, then they would have been recording it probably starting around 1000 BC. So, um, so that's what these things have been given to us. Those are foundational elements. And I say that to you because we think of their reality as dead, but we treat the reality of Scripture as very, very alive. Very, very alive. What's an evangelist? Well, Billy Graham is an evangelist. Are we all called to evangelize? Absolutely, we're all called to evangelize. But there's a special office that the Lord gives as a gift to his church of a person to go out and to make disciples, to extend the church and to upbuild the church. An evangelist. A teacher. What's a teacher? A teacher is someone who teaches. I don't want to overstate this. Let's be, let's be clear. There's no rocket science to it. But what's important about the teacher and the reality of the teaching is that a teacher has to teach something. And a teacher is always, always, always faithful to what has already been told and received and taught. A teacher is someone who is faithful to what was given to the apostles, and to the prophets. A teacher never leaves in this gift the authority, this gift that God has given to the church of, in many ways you could say, the apostles and the prophets. And then shepherds, pastors, overseers. Well, those are people who are ruling elders in this church who are responsible for knowing what's going on in your life, what's going on in your soul. They're ideally the type of people that you're going to coffee with, that you're having meals with, that you're sharing life with. Hopefully, and I hope and pray that this is not you, that you're the person who is hiding from a shepherd. Because in many ways, the Lord Jesus treats us all and calls us all sheep. And a shepherd is someone who goes after and cares for sheep which means that if you're not under the authority or with someone who is a shepherd, a pastor, then you're not being cared for. And in many ways, you're denying the reality of the grace that God has given you, that God actually maybe care for you through somebody else, and it's right here. It's not coming down in a lightning bolt. It's going to be embodied in the reality of a person whom God has given in your life, so why do we hate, hate may be a strong word, why do we have a distaste for these authority figures? You know, America is, well, let me just say this, I love our country, I love our history. And there's one cool thing about the American experiment that is really awesome, and it's a reality to just say, you know what, we're doing our own thing. It's this entrepreneurial spirit this sense of, you know what, y'all have done it this way for so long. Screw y'all. 
we're doing it our own way. And that has actually been, in many ways, in the ethos and in the DNA of the country from the very beginning. And you can see that people who left primarily Europe and they came to the US were out to start a thing. And then people were there in the US and they said, well, I don't like what y'all are doing. We're going to start our own thing. And so we moved and we moved and we moved and we moved. And that's part of a, in some ways, a beautiful legacy that's a product of being a Protestant. And a Protestant means, in many ways, is it says that the Lord Jesus is actively at work in every single Christian's life. That, in fact, every single job, every vocation matters. What you do at work matters. And it doesn't just matter because you can pass a little Four Spiritual Laws track to your coworker. There's an intrinsic value to your work. Vocation matters. The ability for you to handle and interpret the Word of God actually deeply, deeply matters. And a legacy of the Reformation and the history of the starting of our church, of our country, the two things are intertwined in many ways. But here's where it can start to go wrong. I want to read for you uh, an attitude that creeps into our hearts. This is from the 18th century about someone talking about wanting their own freedom of conscience. But if all men are born equal and endowed with unalienable rights by their creator in the blessings of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, then there can be no just reason, no just reason as a cause why he may or should not think and judge and act for himself in matters of religion, opinion, and private judgment. So because we have these rights, no one can say what I should not think, or one, no one can say what I should not do in matters of religion, opinion, and private judgment, which is a way of saying what I believe is what I believe, and don't you dare question it. Don't you dare. This continued throughout the 18th century, and I want to tell you uh, a little story. I'm going to read it, which I know isn't very compelling, but I hope that the content will uh, be interesting to you. This is from a book called The Democratization of American Christianity by Nathan Hatch, and it describes the journey of one man and how he became ordained in his church. This is very relevant for me. Abner Jones, an associate of Elias Smith and the Christian Connection, came to his religious convictions in Bridgewater, Vermont, by asserting an equally independent path. Unsatisfied with the views and creeds of those around him, Jones resolved to launch his own serious investigation, in quotes. Accordingly, he took the Bible and that alone, and without consulting any individual or receiving sympathy from any living being, commenced a prayerful and careful examination of the sacred pages. This is where it gets good. In 1801, Jones sought ordination from the Free Will Baptists, this is no offense to Baptists, by the way, on the condition that he retained complete independence. Ordination on the condition that he retained complete independence. I will never, this is what he says, I will never be subject to one of your rules, but if you will give me the right hand as a brother and let me remain a free man just as I am, I should be glad. 
On these grounds, the free will Baptists agreed to ordain Jones a free man. Why do I tell you that story? I tell you that story because we don't hear anybody talk like that anymore. And the reason why we don't hear anybody talk like that anymore is because it's so deeply embedded and assumed that we don't need to. And it goes something like this. I want to be a part of this church, but I don't want to submit to the authority of this church. Yeah, I'll join, but don't, you tell, don't tread on me. How dare you tell me what to do? How dare you bind my conscience? Deeply embedded attitudes. Again, that's not just the church. It's everywhere. And you can see it. It's amazing. You can trace it back. And these wonderful ideas of our freedom begin to drive us and pull us away further and further and further from under the grace and the good gift of what the Lord Jesus has given his church. It's interesting. Because what goes even further, I want you to think about what's happened to our church. It's been described as having as many different shades and denominations as there are colors of autumn leaves. We're very, very fractured. And because we're fractured and because we insist on our personal independence, we are very, very alone. We're very, very alone and lonely. And sadly, I want to read for you one more quote because this was written in 1844 and this describes what's happened. This is from Philip Schaff. Every theological vagabond and peddler may drive here his bungling trade without passport or license and sell his false wear at pleasure. What is to come of such confusion is not now to be seen. It was about 170 years ago. And what he was saying was, was that every person says that they can believe and do whatever they want, regardless of whether or not it's true or right. Guys, that is idiocracy. We, are, we cannot be that. We cannot be that. The Lord Jesus in his good gifts has given us people in order to help us, not to enslave us, not to bind us, but to set us free. And what I'm asking for you to do today is to question or challenge your assumptions by which you think about your freedom and being under the authority of a church. Now, why wouldn't we like that? Well, because honestly, many of the leaders have let us down. Have we not? If you haven't been let down by a pastor or a teacher, then you haven't been in the church long enough because it's coming. We know it's true. But what are the positives? What are the possibilities? The Lord Jesus says, if, and I want you to look in verse 10, 11 through 12. I'm sorry, in verse 11 through 12, it says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. What can that look like? I'll tell you exactly where it happens on a regular basis. And that happens, this building up of the saints for the equipping of the work and ministry. It happens at Kubi's restaurant. 
here in Dallas, where I'm convinced that both half of the real estate deals happen in Dallas and half of all men's discipleship occurs. If you haven't been there, and as an aside, we might need a reformation on their food menu. If you want to talk with me offline about that, we can do that because there are a lot of options we have. But I found everyone is going there, and one person in particular that I will go there with, and you'll see there regularly, and I asked him if I could tell this story, is John Hawkins. Now, if you know John Hawkins, he is an elder in this church, and John Hawkins has this amazing gift of looking you in the eye, and well, he looks in your eye, and then he sees right through you, and, uh, and basically says, what are you doing? In the, the most straightforward, loving way possible. And I cannot tell you the number of young men, myself included, who have sat in a booth with him and heard him say, so what are you doing? How are you living with a certain sort of recklessness for the gospel? I remember I told him all the things I was involved in. This is about five years ago. And I said, well, I'm in school. I'm starting a business. You know, I'm working at the church. I'm writing a screenplay. Just so delusional. And he looked at me. And he said, James, I think that sounds like a lot. Just words of obvious truth. It's so obvious. When was the last time you went somewhere and put yourself under the authority of a shepherd and had them look into your life and ask you questions like, what's really going on? What's happening? What's happening? What's going on in your heart? What's going on in your marriage? Do you talk to your wife? Are you a corporate titan? And yet you don't know how to talk to your teenage daughter? You waffle and hide when it comes time to cut the yard, but you'll work 75 hours a week on that deal? Very real questions for real realities. And so I don't want to leave you with that because... I want to challenge you, but ultimately, because I was telling John, why is it that I want to talk with him about this? And he said, ultimately, I've been thinking about what it means to be under authority. And this is what John said. He said, to be under the authority would mean to be in a relationship with an older man where he just is going to show me how much Jesus loves me. The ultimate purpose behind which we think about the prophets, the apostles, the pastors, the teachers, the evangelists, is ultimately to remind you and tell you of God's love for you. Let's throw all the how do we live the best life aside. Out of one source comes the life and source of our joy and being, and that is God. And he has given us gifts, and they are these people. And it's for the reality that we would know what it means to be taken captive by the love of Jesus Christ. I know that most of you in here, this is a very smart crowd. I know that if I were to ask you what redemption was, you'd be able to tell me. And you, hopefully... Some of you would say, well, redeemer, it means God buys us back. Jesus is our redeemer. He buys us. Well, if he buys us, that means he owns us. And in a real way, we are his captives. We are under authority, all of us. Not just people who aren't ordained. Me especially. I need that. 
It means that we're caught in the line. We're in the train. And we get the idea that we belong to him. But do you get the idea, guys, that Jesus, his love is bound to you? Jesus loves you. He loves you, he loves you, he loves you, and love binds. And the heart of the gospel is this, that yes, we are bound to Jesus, but it is overwhelming love which binds us. It reorients the way we think about the gifts in which he's given and makes me think maybe that silly blanket that I received is actually my favorite thing in the world and is on the foot of my bed and I use it five times a week. Maybe that thing that I didn't care about so much was actually the best thing that could have ever been given to me because it says something about the one who gave it. Guys, Jesus loves you. And your work in ministry to build up his church is to overflow out of that. The questions you have on your table are to work out and talk about practically what does it mean to build up that church, to build up the body of Christ, to be equipped to do his service. What is your place within what I have just given? You have been commissioned. This is your job. And it's part of an eternal reality that you would bring heaven and earth together. This is what Jesus has called you towards. I do not know what your thing is, but it is something. And if you don't know what it is, now's the time to figure it out. Because Jesus might be coming back tomorrow. Or right now. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you're good, you're loving, you're holy. Thank you for gifts. um, Especially gifts that we don't necessarily want, uh, that we don't think are important, but then turn out to be the most important things in the world. Thank you for the gifts of people, imperfect people, um, who can be conduits and ministers of your grace to draw us deeper and further into life with you. I pray that each man here would know, if they don't know what that love is, that they would know what it means to be grasped by the love of Jesus Christ and the identity and the new life that flows from that. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.